Hello, everyone. Lee Arland here again with another edition of Country Music Conversations. This week, we'll be talking to musician, songwriter, singer, and record producer, Rodney Crowell. But before we start this conversation, here are a few words from our sponsor. Country Music Conversations with Lee Arnold's podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Marketsmith, Inc., the digital media agency that's been growing brands like Tumi, Shark Ninja, New Jersey Lottery, PSE&G, Blue Mercury Cosmetics, and Dick Sporting Goods. You know what makes this agency so good at what they do? Because simply being a marketing agency is no longer enough. Solution-based, problem-solving, and ever-evolving, they create enduring value for DTC and B2B brands by opening up and growing marketing channels. Their patented AI offerings, informed by human intelligence, allow them to act with agility and intellect. I was speaking with the CEO not too long ago, and she was saying they take on clients who know who they are, who want to grow, and clients that know what they want. These big brands choose Marketsmith because they want to merge with a partner who will make them exceptional and an agency that will grow their revenue. Digital marketing is not easy, but Marketsmith Inc. knows when to make the media dollars work hard for their clients. You have a brand you want to grow? Well, contact Marketsmith.com and tell them Lee Arnold sent you. As a songwriter, Rodney has written some of the most incredible country standards since arriving in Nashville. He's had five number one singles on the hot country songs in Billboard, all from his 1988 album called Diamonds and Dirt. He's also produced many other well-known country music stars. Rodney's been influenced by well-known songwriters like Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt. Rodney played guitar and sang for three years in Emmylou Harris's Hot Band. He's won two Grammy Awards in his career, one in 1990 for Best Country Song for the Song, After All This Time, and one in 2014 for Best Americana Album, Old Yellow Moon. Rodney was born in Houston, Texas, and he came from a musical family. One of his grandfathers was a church choir leader, and the other a bluegrass banjo player. His grandmother played guitar, and his father sang semi-professionally at bars and honky-tonks. By the time he was 11, he started playing drums in his father's band. And when he was a teenager, he played in various garage rock bands in Houston, performing the hits of the day mixed with a few country songs. In 1972, he moved to Nashville, where he got a job as a songwriter after being discovered by Jerry Reed. In his own words, quote, I got a real cold splash in the face of what real songwriting is about, unquote. In 1977, as a side project, he formed a musical group called The Cherry Bombs with Vince Gill, Tony Brown, and others. And he also signed a solo deal with Warner Brothers Records. In 1978, they released his debut album, Ain't Living Long Like This. And he followed up with two more albums that were not commercially successful. Although, he garnered a huge cult following. Rodney's first big taste of pop songwriting success came with a song called Shame on the Moon, recorded by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. The song spent four weeks at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 Pop Singles chart and placed in the top 15 of the country charts back in 1983. In 1981, Rodney put his career on hold to produce several of his wife Roseanne Cash's albums. And in 1983, Crystal Gale had a number one country single with his classic, Till I Gain Control Again. Although Rodney is known as a songwriter and alternative country artist, he's enjoyed mainstream popularity during the 80s and the 90s. Rodney continued to enjoy success as a songwriter both in the 90s and 2000s. During that time, Rodney's songs reached the top 10 in the country charts. Songs like Song for the Life by Alan Jackson and Making Memories of Us by Keith Urban. Ashes by Now by Leanne Womack and Please Remember Me by Tim McGraw. Rodney was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2003 and Vintage Books published his memoir called China Berry Sidewalks in 2011. And the book primarily focused on Crowell's relationship with his parents' marriage and his own early years growing up in Houston. Success continued for Rodney when he and Emmylou Harris released Old Yellow Moon. The album reached number four on Billboard's Country Albums chart and number 29 on the Billboard Hot 200 charts. 
It also won the Americana Music Awards Album of the Year, and Rodney and Emmy Lou were named Group and Duo of the Year. Rodney won his second Grammy when Old Yellow Moon won the Grammy for Best Americana Album. In 2019, Rodney received the Poets Award from the Academy of Country Music for his achievements in songwriting. Today's conversation with Rodney took place in 1990 at the Country Radio Seminar in Nashville. Here now is Rodney Crowell. So relaxing and talking to, congratulations, the man of the hour, Rodney Crowell. Hi, Rodney. Hi, Lee. How you doing? Congratulations in order for your Grammy. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a, a you know, a, a moment of not only victory, but also personal satisfaction. And, and, and probably a million thoughts went through your mind when they when they announced the name Rodney Crowell and you went up to accept. Well, you know, when they call your name out in that situation, there's always that kind of, uh, your synapses kind of go off on you. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, well, well, that's me. I better get on up there. And I, of course, I had prepared nothing to say. And uh, I was really surprised. I'd, honestly, I didn't think I would win a Grammy for the best song of 1989. And, and when, you know, when they called my name, I was elated. It was wonderful. You know, considering the fact I've been writing songs for so long, you know, and to get them about... Here, a funny story that's short. I wrote After All This Time in two phases, and the, I finally brought it to a close in late in 84, and I told this lady who's a journalist, I said, well, I've just written the most important song in my career. And then after I said that, I went home to my wife, Roseanne, and I said, oh, I said the stupidest thing. I said, I've just written the most important song in my career. I said, God, how presumptuous of me. So here, these few years later, I guess uh, that kind of validated what I said way back when. Absolutely, absolutely. It, uh, it never ceases to amaze everybody of... Uh the posture country music still has, or the perception we still have, even at the Grammys. I mean, it was a wonderful affair, but I understand at one point they, they wanted to put you in a different setting to do your set. Uh, there was something about putting hay bales out or whatever. Well, that worked for KD, you know, because she's got that kind of hybrid uh, punk country thing that where the hay bales are like, they're really authentic in her case. Oh, absolutely. But in, in my case, I mean, in, in radio and press, I've griped and carried on enough about hay bale mentality about country music to where I would be a hypocrite if I hadn't said something. And they had a set design that was really... Uh, in opposition to what, how I think country music should pre be presented. So I had to make that stand, otherwise I would have been a hypocrite. It was interesting how the country awards came down, 50%, uh, 50% vis-a-vis yourself for Song of the Year and for, for uh, a performer, and uh, also uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band for Album of the Year for the Will the Circle Be Unbroken, the definitive album of the year. And then on the other hand, the choice of Lyle Lovett and Katie Lang, who are really not accepted, as we speak, into the mainstream of commercial airplay in country radio here in the United States. A very interesting choice. Well, they're eclectic artists, and, and I admire them both. And I say more power to them, and my hat's off to them as artists, and they have my respect unendingly. Um, I think I think part of their recognition is that the rock journalists and, and the rock press has given them quite a bit of uh, support and, you know, airtime and print, you know. And, uh, and it's, it's a funny thing about that aspect of the press. They don't seem to want to give much time to those who are considered mainstream or successful in the mainstream country. I don't know if it's an image problem. I don't think I have an image problem that way. I, I think that, uh, the thing about rock criticism, it's an interesting phenomenon. I, I think in terms of the outside aspects of it, such as folk or jazz or uh, uh, some of the, the lesser mainstream music country, obviously, I think that that image, you know, it's kind of hard to come by that quote-unquote hip image. And Lyle and KD definitely have a hip image, so... But more important to me than their so-called quote-unquote hip images that they are fine artists who write really, really exceptional stuff. It would like that, you know, you always yearn to see and you admire an artist from afar and also have, have, have are tuned into what they're doing and understand their artistry. And it's a shame, like you're saying, when is the rest of the world going to catch up here? Well, the rest of the world always catches up. And, you know, because you and I are working in this business and it's our business to know what's going on, you can't put your timetable, you can't expect the uh, public or anybody else to re react to your timetable. Everybody has their own pace at discovery, and um, I think eventually everybody always catches up one way or another. Well, yours is a case in point, and we can go back to names like Willie Nelson, too. Well, I don't know who, who took longer, me or Willie. I, uh, 
Mm, I hope I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on the good things, your brand new album doing very, very well. Uh, Many Along and Lonesome Highway, the first cut from the album, co-written with uh, or Will Jennings, yeah. uh, who sent it to you, turned out to be another great, great performance by Rodney Crown. Yeah, I, I really think that was a pretty... Uh, I'm proud of that record. I'm proud of my performance, and I'm proud of the atmosphere. And, and it was a bit of a... Uh, a chance on my part to, to put out a record that was kind of that introverted mm-hmm. um, after some of the other things that I had done, like Above and Beyond or She's Crazy for Leaving, were very commercial, uh, undeniable records. That one, it, it took, you know, I had to have some faith in the listener on that. And it did really well, and I'm, I'm proud of it. I really am. It's got to affirm your, your feelings that people listen to lyrics, too, and listen to the message and what you're saying. Well, that was the thing about country music. Uh, from the very beginning for me is, uh, you know, I love the feel of the music and the sound and the, the uh, kind of richness, but it was always a music of language and storytelling in the same way that folk music was, you know, and gospel music. Uh, that aspect of country has always appealed to me, and, and uh, that's kind of what I gravitated toward as a songwriter. I'm always striving to come up with something new musically, but I think I even strive harder to come up with something uh, in using the language and storytelling. The more you write and the styles you write in and the experiences you relate musically, whether they're autobiographical or just from some idea from a news headline or something you see on television. As the years go on, Rodney, does it become increasingly more difficult or easier to come up with hit songs or song ideas? Well, for me, maturity and success, uh, I really knock on wood and thank uh, heavens for the fact that songwriting has become an easier job for me. Mm-hmm. I've become more efficient at it. I hear people talk about how painful songwriting is. And there was a period in, in my career when it was painful, but over the past four or five years, it's become just a sheer joy. And and I think that may be because I don't really put any pressure on, you know, I don't go to the office and sit down and hammer myself over the head. I'm not a nine-to-fiver. Whenever I'm lucky enough to receive some inspiration from my surroundings or whatever, uh, I'm skilled enough in the craft to get it down, to to capture the ideas and turn it into a song. And it's just more and more fun for me. Your new one, and doing very well, is called If Looks Could Kill. If Looks Could Kill. Yeah, I was. that song is, that's that... Uh, uh, there's two sides of that coin. One is the serious side, which is uh, the argument aspect of a relationship. And the other side is that, you know, I venture to say nine out of the ten arguments that I have with uh, Roseanne, my wife, is uh, usually when we're in the middle of them, I can't even remember what triggered it. Arguing. Yeah, it's like, oh, how did we get here? And, that, and you know, if you, if you can get outside of yourself, that's funny. You know, it's really funny how silly we are. And I was trying to stay outside of myself and, and write that song, perform that song with a with a sense of humor and kind of a chuckle in my heart. But by the same token, you know, sometimes you just get so mad at somebody. Uh, and there is a serious aspect of that. Okay, I'm worried from Netflix to Kill. The spotlight, basically, uh, for a number of years was on Roseanne, because she was enjoying and still enjoys a wonderful career when she had records out there and they were commercially successful. Now, kind of, uh, worm has turned a little bit. Now, now the focus is on Rodney. Has, what, what has that created? I guess you guys have had a wonderful relationship, husband and wife, and also professionally all these years. So there's, there's no sibling rivalry, so to speak. Well, no, not at this point. There's a, a healthy little competition between us. Uh, I mean, basically, it comes down to something like this. If Roseanne writes something, a new song, or records something that, that I like, you know, that I think is good, I'll... I'll say to myself, man, I wish I'd have wrote that, or, you know, oh, and, it, and that kind of little spark of competition will uh, inspire me and spark me to uh, to show her what I can do, you know, because Roseanne's my first, she's the the audience that I seek out, you know, when I write something new, the first thing I want to do is, is find out, find her and find what she's doing, say, listen to what I've come up with, and if she's like really thumbs up on it, I'm elated, and if she doesn't, and sometimes, you know, she doesn't hear what I'm doing, you know, and, and uh you know, I'll be crushed, and I'll go back to the drawing board and, and regain my confidence and come back and say, I don't think you, I think you missed this, because this is good. And it also works in reverse. You know, I, I come up with something really good uh, creatively, and I can see her eyes kind of narrow, and she'll check me out, and next thing I know, she's written something that's uh, on a par. So we're just going up this ladder in life, you know, just have, enjoying ourselves. Enjoying the kids, too, these days? Well, the kids are incredible. They're just funny and full of themselves, and yeah. I enjoy them. 
Are they affected by the celebrity, both you and Roseanne, in any aspect, or are they just leading normal lives? Uh, the way it looks to me, they're they're really unaffected. They, uh, you know, they have their people, music uh, stars, so to speak, that they really are off into. And you know, we're, we're mom and dad. We certainly don't carry on any star pretenses around our houses and our house. And our kids would basically call us on it. They like our music. I can tell. I can tell they like it, and, and they speak specifically about my songs and what have you. Certain songs of mine they like better. Uh, but, I mean, you can't have any pretenses with your children, you know? It's like, I'm their father, and my job is entertaining people. Right. Your, your new album, there must be a couple of other choices there that you would like to see as a potential single in uh, the not-too-distant future, Rodney. Any personal picks? Oh, boy, that's a... I like, uh, I like Don't Let Your Feet Slow You Down. It's a it's a mature song, and it's it's kind of gentle. There's a vulnerability about it that, that I would like to see, you know? I, I would like for people to hear that aspect of me. And by the same token, there's this really roguish kind of... Uh, sexual bragging song called baby we got to go on meeting like this which which has a it has its tongue-in-cheek entertainment value uh you know you have to just kind of take them one at a time that's a real 90s song well we got to go on meeting like this well i don't know i mean it's it's kind of promoting promiscuity or adultery really and uh i don't know why was it not popular well well, i I mean there's i always say when i introduce that song to my audience that country music has this history of cheating songs and usually there's a guilt complex that goes with the cheating aspect of it that makes you sick right Right. guilt makes people sick so i say this is a song that uh you know it's a a real positive look at uh, cheating they're really only what what three or four basic themes you can really write on any kind of music well i don't know you got got, i don't know that's true you got love and you got uh lust (laughs) you got uh you got heartbreak you got tragedy you got tragedy you got uh nature you got you got the morning you got the evening you know you got you got love you got lust you got drinking you got cheating you got being true i don't know there's uh i was you know, I like songs that have a certain atmosphere. I, I'm pretty, uh, I enjoy art and I like painters and I like reading. I like films. And to me, the, the job of the artist in our society is to, you know, capture these moments that, you know, so that you can hold them up for uh, your audience or for people to, uh, you know, just to be able to stop for a moment and say, yeah, I know about that. Or, yeah, or, it touches my heart or, you know, rings a bell or strikes a chord. I, that's the job of the artist. Mm-hmm. I know you're pretty close not only to your music and, and your creativity and Roseanne and the family, but uh, your second family has really got to be your band when you're on the road, particularly these days when you're away from home so much. And a lot of those relationships and friendships go back a long time. I know uh, particularly people like Hank DeVito, who uh, uh, plays Steel and is a very close friend of yours and Roseanne's. Uh, these are the kind of things that I think make for, don't you think, a better performance on stage? Because more so than just a musician, he's also a friend. Well, it's been, uh, since I first started working with Emmylou Harris in 1970, late 74, early 75, uh, from the beginning, our working relationship was real kind of supportive and uh, there was kind of a loyalty aspect that Amy Lou uh, inspired in those who worked with her. Hank and I became friends there. Hank is a New Yorker. I don't know if you know. He's, he's a graduate of the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. He's a, he's a very intense creative artist. Um, I like, I mean, what I seek in musicians besides creativity and originality and, and those kind of things is a, kind of a human quality, somebody that I want to be around because it's not my style to stand up in front uh, on the stage and put my band in an orchestra pit or put you know try to hide them and kind of steal the show that kind of I like to bring the musical contributions of everybody who is on the stage with me in some way I like to shine a light on all of that aspect and uh, I mean I have my reasons for that I think that makes me look better too you know it makes me look like a more generous performer but uh, I mean family feel you know kind of a warmth and a love and a real connection that runs through it all I think the audience benefits from that as much as we do. The growth experience and the maturity, a great deal of it in your, your musical background, had to come by being part of the hot band with Emmy Lou. Because as a role model, as you just mentioned or alluded to, she gave an awful lot to the people who worked with her and for her. That's true. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I dropped out of college, knocked around for a while, and then joined Emmy Lou's band. And it was like I went on to get my degree in music there because that was a time when uh, I was working with Glenn Harden and Emery Gordy and uh, James Burton. They all came from Elvis's TCB band, Elvis Presley's band. 
uh, which was, and they were all seasoned veterans. And I was a rookie. Mm-hmm. Hank DeVito and I were really rookies in that situation. And we had the benefit of working with these seasoned veterans. And it, uh, boy, it just paid off. You know, it just, I learned so much so fast that it was, and, and life is for learning. And I'm really grateful for those kind of opportunities I've had. Everybody looks at records, uh, not only records as such, not the ones you play, but also the ones you establish as far as longevity. Uh, and your record concerning your last album, Diamonds and Dirt, certainly, uh, you, I don't know how you're going to do yourself. Five number one singles. You're the first male country artist who's ever done that from one album. Uh, that's a hard act to follow. Yeah, but, you know, I don't think acts are made to follow. You know, I think if I, when I saw that coming to a peak there and getting on into the fifth number one record, I started saying to myself, mm, I know what could develop here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I go into a recording studio and, and try to top myself, you know, it's like trying to uh, jump over a fence or something, or better yet, a better analogy is go through a brick wall. You can't run through it. You know, you best walk around it. So I, I decided early on not to put that kind of pressure on myself that as an artist, it doesn't me and it doesn't help anybody listening to me. So I just kind of ignored that. And I'm going to continue to ignore it. If I don't ever top that, that won't mean my work's not valid. Uh, you know, that's that was just a peak. Along, there are many peaks. Some of them are higher than the others. Above and Beyond in first album, one of the number one singles, was a very nice tribute to, to Buck Owens because that goes back to your early days in Houston when you were probably influenced by Buck and probably sang that early on when you were young. Well, truth is, that was the first song I ever sang in public. It was. Yeah, and uh, there in 61, 62, 3, 4, 5, those years, uh, I really was on a steady diet of Buck Owens and those records that he was making for Capitol Records with Kim Nelson producing at the time. And I knew every note, every word on those records. And uh, I was 11, 12 years old at the time, and playing drums in my father's band and he he told me you know won't you pick out a song for yourself and sing it so that's the one i picked out above and beyond and made my uh, uh public debut so to speak as a singer with that and i'm sure i must have must have butchered it at the time but later on I became really good friends with harlan howard who wrote it and harlan and i wrote a song together called somewhere tonight that was a real successful song and uh i was just thinking of telling harlan you know when we became friends i said god your your song is the first song i ever sang in public isn't it strange that i would be here writing a song with you now life is nice <laughs> isn't it it's really amazing uh, uh people you know uh like you say th- those are one of those stories that, that just happen and it's not uncommon in nashville for someone as a child to revere an artist and then eventually at one point in time either write a song with them or sing a duet with them or be part of their show later on yeah i, just, I remember I, I really revered buck owens and uh i was out in california in the hotel room out of the blue uh the phone rings it's buck owens calling me from bakersfield and i'm, I'm saying hello mr no i'm trying to be real cool um and he was telling me all about uh, my album diamonds and dirt and why he liked it and how he was going to be watching what i did and uh, it was a really great moment for me. I, I contained myself and didn't swarm all over him with how much I had admired him. I waited till the next time I talked to him. <laughs> <laughs> and then you gushed over. Yeah, then I gushed over, and I think he enjoyed it. You mentioned She's Crazy for Leaving, and you said that, the, you know, Merle Haggard at one time said, mentioned a bunch of his greatest hits, number one songs. He says, oh, that was a formula song, mm-hmm. or I came a commercial song. And it's pretty hard to even categorize or pigeonhole or categor- you know, to, to do that, uh, to classify songs like that, because each one stands on its own, I would feel. Yeah, some of, uh, I mean, take a song like She's Crazy for Leaving. I'm, I wrote that with Guy Clark, and, and Guy is a very vivid writer. And uh, when I work with Guy, and we're, we're really close friends for a long time, he, he seems my uh, skills in terms of writing vividly. And that song is, is the language and the description in it to me is very cartoon vivid. Uh, but the music is very straight ahead, straightforward. And I think once the record was made of that, I think of that as, a, as obviously a commercial type record. And I, I'm very proud of the, the lyric content of it and the record as a total. But some of them just sound like, yeah, that, that's a radio record. It's just so obvious you can't deny it. And some of them are more subtle and less obvious. And, and uh, you know, you can't say one is better than the other. It's just taste at the moment. I guess the icing on the cake besides your own career, which is just doing so well these days, writing as an artist professionally, both as a writer and performer, the icing on the cake has to be 
the kudos you've received from having other artists succeed with your music and going way back when to the first, very first big hit by the Oak Ridge Boys, leaving Louisiana in the broad daylight, had a very special moment in your life. Well, the way that it is a very special moment, you know, and it's validation for your work, but that's... Uh, that's those times in the in the beginning, you know, when I was really breaking through in the success realm. When when you go to the phone company and, and you're getting a phone or your water turned on or something, you know, in a new house or something, and they're wanting to know a little bit about what you do. And I say, well, at the moment, I happen to have three songs in the top ten, and uh, you just turn on the radio, and those are my songs. And then that kind of impresses the water company lady, and she treats you a little more respectfully. <laughs> when you think of your songs in, in important ballads, and uh, one really, not, I don't know how it rates in your estimation or in your heart, but to like In Control Again, which uh, is just turned out to be one of the most well-known classics in country music by almost every artist from Crystal Gale, Amy Lou, and Willie Nelson all the way down the line. At the time, did, did you feel that, that that would have such an impact musically on the artists and, and generally as, as a song for country music fans as it has, that will live on as a standard? No, I didn't. I must say, I wrote that early on. I was 24 really? when I wrote that, and that was, uh, that was when I was just getting... Uh, a grip on songwriting, you know, and, and sometimes good things happen when you don't know what you're doing. Uh, and I thought back on that song, I can vaguely remember writing it and the actual process of writing it was more like it was a gift from somewhere else. And I just happened to get it down on paper and I don't even know how. And uh, it took me a few years, uh, even after Amy Lou had recorded it. And uh, it's been many recordings of that song. And then one day I heard it, uh, a friend of mine was just doing a showcase at a club here and he was trying to get himself a recording deal. And he was kind of nervous and it was kind of a big moment for him and he didn't have any records out, but he sang that song and vulnerability made me cry. I started crying sitting there and I was in, looked at my wife. I said, oh, God, look at me. But it was just beautiful, his performance. And that was when the song had came back to live in my heart. And that was 1982. Yeah. So that song was uh, almost 10 years old before it kind of came back to live in my heart forever. So uh, it's a really important song to me just because I, I think I was lucky to write that song. Have there been times when you've written a song and then you finally heard the final arrangement or the record and as a writer say, that was not what I really had in mind? Oh, that's happened many times. Many times. Uh, my own recordings, uh, other reco other reco other people's recordings. Uh, when I was younger and newer at it, I used to get a little huffy and feel like I needed to make my opinion known. I, I feel like they should know that they butchered my song. Right. But I, that's just not a posture I can take. You know, those songs are written and, and once I've written written them, if I want to sing them or record them, then that's my business. But if someone else records them, it's strictly, uh, you know, it's none of my business. And I don't have a right, I don't feel I have a right to, to criticize anybody's version of one of my songs. Mm -hmm. What's the plan now? Any, any special plans or any other special projects coming up that uh, you're particularly interested in doing in the next six months, a year? Oh, I've got so many projects uh, going that I feel like that guy with too many things on the cook stove, you know. I'm working uh, on a, uh, in an environmental group that we're, we're trying to do a lot of things to get the word out to improve our environment. Uh, I'm working uh, with a rape center here in Nashville, uh, trying to help them raise money. Uh, I'm writing songs. I got a, uh, a real neat recording project that's coming into focus that I think is going to be long overdue. What it is, but I think it's going to be well received. And uh, in about a month's time, I will be back on the road, uh, meeting and greeting as many people as I can. Great. Well, Rodney, thank you so much for for taking time out here in Nashville, which is precious to you to be home with Roseanne and the kids. And it's always wonderful to be with you and see you, and wish you all the very, very best. And the same to you. All right. Thank you. And there's our conversation with one of Nashville's best, Rodney Crowell. Join me next week when our guest will be Charlie Daniels. Until then, Lee Arnold reminding you to stay safe and keep it country.